Hi, everyone. Um, like Oliver said, we're reading from 2 Samuel 16, verses 1 to 14. I'll just give you a sec. When David had gone a short distance beyond the summit, there was Zippah, the steward of Mephibosheth, waiting to meet him. He had a string of donkeys saddled and loaded with 200 loaves of bread, 100 cakes of raisins, 100 cakes of figs, and a skin of wine. The king asked Zippah, why have you bought these? Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and fruit are for the men to eat, and the wine is to refresh those who become exhausted in the wilderness. The king then asked, Where is your master's grandson? Ziba said to him, He is staying in Jerusalem because he thinks, Today, the Israelites will restore to me my grandfather's kingdom. Then the king said to Zippah, All that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. I humbly bow, Zippah said. May I find favor in your eyes, my lord the king. As King David approached Baharim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shemai, son of Gerah, and he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and special guard were on David's right and left. As he cursed, Shemai said, Get out, get out, you murderer, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. Then Abishai, son of Zeruah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. But the king said, What does this have to do with you, you sons of Zeruah? If he is cursing because the Lord said to him, Curse David, who can ask, Why do you do this? Then David said to Abishai and all his officials, My son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more then this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. So David and his men continued along the road while Shammai was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. The king and all the people with him arrived at their destination exhausted, and there he refreshed himself. Well, good evening, friends. My name's Adam. I'm a student minister here at uh, Grace Anglican Church. Uh, it's great to be with you uh, again, uh, bringing God's word. Uh, 
Keep your Bible open to 2 Samuel 16. We're going to work our way through uh, our little half chapter today. Uh, But I wanted to uh, start by uh, just bringing us up to speed where we are. We are in the midst of the grand betrayal. Uh, Absalom, son of King David, betraying his father, uh, beginning a coup against him. Um, And a grand betrayal like that, well, it, it can't help... You can't help but think of uh, those kind of movie moments, those grand betrayals. There's one up on the screen. Uh, yep, there we go. Oh, we've got a clicker. Yeah, who's that? Yeah, it's the Matrix. That's Cypher in the Matrix who betrays them all while they're uh, in whatever their sleepy state is when they're in the Matrix. Uh, who else have we got? Who's that? Yeah, that's from Coco. That's Ernesto. He betrayed his uh, friend Hector uh, and stole his music. Uh, what about this one? Do you know who that is? Oh, Prince Charming, not so charming. Yep, that's uh, Hans from Frozen. Uh, and of course, the classic, or you might, you, you might say not so classic, uh, Star Wars. Um, obviously, some of us think that the, uh, the only classic movies were the ones that were made a long time ago and that this one doesn't count, uh, but that's okay. Uh, it's, it's the backstory. Uh, so Anakin Skywalker, his betrayal uh, of Obi-Wan and the Force, uh, his turn to the dark side and uh, becoming Darth Vader, the ultimate betrayal. And uh, as Anakin is lying in this kind of mushed up scene that I've got on the screen there, he's lying, um, tragically, limbs cut off, burning up uh, in the lava. What we we think are going to be his last words, even though we know they're not. Uh, What does he say? What's his last words to Obi-Wan? I hate you. And Obi-Wan's last words in return, you were my brother, Anakin. I loved you. Now, you can kind of imagine um, Absalom and uh, his father, David. I hate you. And David is, you are my son, Absalom. I loved you. But unlike all these movies, Absalom's betrayal of his father actually happened in history. It really happened. This isn't just a movie moment. It's a tragic betrayal of a father for power. But interestingly, it's not unique. The killing of a king by his son to gain power for himself uh, happens in, well, has happened in, in monarchies all over the world, which I find slightly strange since the son is the heir and you're kind of going to get the throne anyway. Seems a bit strange to me, but it happens tragically a lot. Uh, but one notable difference here from uh, monarchies the world over is that David... King David has a special place as God's anointed king over God's people. And so, here we go. And so, here we are in this story about betrayal, and uh, David is escaping from Jerusalem. He's heard that Absalom is coming, there's going to be an inevitable siege of Jerusalem. And we pick up our story today uh, in chapter 16 as David makes his way further from Jerusalem. He's encountered uh, some people previously along the way, but as he gets further from Jerusalem today, the people he encounters begin to change. 
Today, you'll see on your outline, if you got one of these when you came in, on the back, you'll see the three um, people that, well, two that, two that he encounters and one that's with him. Um, two more people from, who are from the house of Saul. So we'll meet Zeba and Shimi, who I'm going to call Shimi, uh, because uh, I, I know it seems to be pronounced Shimei, but I had a look at the Hebrew, and from what I can tell, Shimi is okay, but I'm not going to keep doing that the whole talk, so don't worry. Um, so we're going to call him Shimi, and uh, then the sons of Zeroyah, and uh, we'll meet um, uh, Abishai, who's, who's one of the sons of Zeroyah. So that's who we're going to meet uh, today. But I just want to retrace what we've seen uh, last week. Hopefully you can see that up on the screen. Um, last week, as David left Jerusalem in a hurry, he first met Ittai. Uh, so he's kind of in the middle, right in the middle of the screen. He was a Gittite, uh, so a foreigner. And uh, he'd only arrived just yesterday. And David, the king, is, is now fleeing. And yet this foreigner who's arrived yesterday, he swears loyalty to David even to death. We saw that last week. We saw a show of military support for David's kingship. And then as he goes on, the priests, the the Levitical priests, Zadok and Abiathar, you'll see them uh, over on this side of the screen with the Levites. Uh, They turn up um, with the Ark of God, which was uh, the really important Um, kind of representation of God's presence. And so they turn up this show of religious and spiritual affirmation of David. Um, But David sends them back to Jerusalem as his spies. And then uh, David meets Hushai, who was an Israelite, but from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, But he's described as a friend of David. Uh, Hushai is uh, back in the middle. He's an archite from the tribe of Benjamin. Um, And He was probably an older man, but he had great wisdom, but poor mobility, so he would have kind of held David up, but David sends him back as a double agent uh, to pose as an advisor for Absalom, uh, but actually to to be a double agent for David, and so David has some political support, and so things are looking pretty all right, even as David's fleeing. But now, in our passage today... David starts to encounter some people who raise questions about this ubiquitous support that he seems to see. Today we we meet, as I said, Ziba, who is a servant of the household of Saul. We'll meet Shimi, uh, who is a man uh, from Saul's clan. He's quite close in family to Saul, um, who was the previous king of Israel. Uh, And so we start to move from this unconditional loyalty of a foreigner all the way through to some questionable loyalty that we'll see uh, from the servants of the house of the former king of Saul, and then outright death threats uh, from a Benjamite of Saul's clan. We'll see that today. We'll also, towards the end of our passage, see what appears to be some fierce loyalty uh, from the nephew of David, Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, but which we're going to see might be something a little bit more sinister. Now, throughout today, I'm going to get you guys to have a chat with the person next to you, just 30-second chats uh, about each of our people uh, as we go through, and we'll see what we think of them as we uh, work our way through our passage. But as we do, we're going to to consider um, the responses to God's anointed King David of each of these people. We'll consider the attitude of David in these encounters, 
And we'll also have a look at the sovereign purposes of God throughout all of this account in maintaining David's kingship. Now, in contrast, David's leading in great, leaving the city in great haste, it's really interesting in the narrative, this description takes place in quite slow motion, and it's filled with all these details of these encounters. So we should pay attention to them. So let's first go to Zeba. Let's have a look at Zeba. Open your passage if you haven't got it already. Uh, let's have a look again at verse 1 to 4. Zeba turns up with large amounts of provisions at just the right time. Verse 1, when David had gone a short distance beyond the summit, there was Zeba, the steward of Mephibosheth, waiting to meet him. He had a string of donkeys saddled and loaded with 200 loaves of bread, 100 cakes of raisins, 100 cakes of figs, and a skin of wine. The king asked Zeba, why have you brought these? Zeba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and fruit are for the men to eat, and the wine is to refresh those who have become exhausted in the wilderness. The king then asked, where's your master's grandson? Zeba said to him, he's staying in Jerusalem because he thinks today the Israelites will restore to me my grandfather's kingdom. Then the king said to Zeba, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. I humbly bow, said Zeba. May I find favor in your eyes, my lord the king. What do you think of Zeba? And what do you think of David's decision? Why don't you have a 30-second chat to the person next to you? Would you have done what David did? Have a chat with someone around you. 30 seconds. All right, 30 seconds goes quick. It's just an opinion. All right, we're going to come back together. What did you reckon of Zeba? Is Zeba legit? What's, what's going on here? So David's, David's leaving Jerusalem, and he's just got beyond the summit of the Mount of Olives. He's just got over the hill. Uh, and so he encounters Zeba, and Zeba's the steward of Mephibosheth. And so we first met Zeba um, back in 2 Samuel chapter 9. So David had uh, way back in, in 1 Samuel sworn an oath of friendship with King Saul's son, Jonathan, right? They'd sworn an oath of friendship between them and their descendants. And so back in 2 Samuel 9, David is now king and he asks, is there anyone left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake, his friend. And so they summon this Zeba, who's a servant in Saul's household, a steward, and Zeba tells David about Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. Say that five times quickly. Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth. Poor guy, difficult name. Unfortunately, he's also described as being lame in both feet. So he was, he was actually dropped as a baby by a midwife uh, and has become disabled in both feet. So difficult, 
difficult life. Uh, but here's this descendant. And so for the sake of his father, Jonathan, Mephibosheth's father, David restores to Mephibosheth everything that belonged to Mephibosheth's grandfather, Saul. The whole thing. And he also promises Mephibosheth that he will always eat at David's table like one of his sons. It's a huge privilege and a huge blessing uh, for a man who's both the descendant of the overthrown King Saul, the rival king in some ways, and for someone who in that time had a disability. There's no equal opportunity back then. There's no NDIS support back then. In fact, Mephibosheth even identifies himself in derogatory terms when David does this. He says, why have you concern for a dead dog like me? But Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. It's wonderful. And David appoints Ziba to steward Saul's estate for Mephibosheth. To look, uh, to look after all the fields and all the crops and everything. And so now, back in our story, just at the moment when David's had all these people turning up to help, who turns up but Zeba, bearing gifts? And last week we saw that right on the heels of David's prayer for Ahithophel, his counsellor who betrayed him, David prayed that his advice would be turned to foolishness, And Hushai arrived as the answer to David's prayer. Well, likewise here, Ziba is an unlikely provider. He arrives with just what David needs at this moment, provisions. David probably hasn't had time to gather all these things. It seems like God's hand is moving these events, even as human beings are seemingly in control. But Ziba turns up and David's question why have you brought these? Well, possibly it does reflect some suspicion on his part. Where's Mephibosheth? With the dexterity of a modern politician uh, in an interview, Ziba manages to avoid the issue. He states the obvious. He says, the food is for you to eat, the wine is to drink, and the donkeys are for you to ride on. Yes, thank you. That was, that was kind of obvious. It's kind of akin to, what brought you along to church today? A car. Yes, that's true, but we're not really getting anywhere, are we? What David really wants to know is, are these coming from Mephibosheth? What are the implications for David and his support? And so he asks where Mephibosheth is. And Ziba claims that despite his apparent loyalty to, to David... Mephibosheth has abandoned David, that he seeks to reclaim the kingship of the family of Saul. So what's David's response? Well, his immediate response is to hand over all of Mephibosheth's property to Ziba without hearing any further evidence, perhaps giving us a bit of an indication of the failings in the justice department that his son Absalom had been hinting at when he laid the foundation for his coup. Clearly, David has only heard one side of the story, and this moment when he's exiting Jerusalem doesn't really seem to be a good one for making rash decisions, but it seems like David's trust in the loyalty of Saul's household towards him, well, it, it may not be very strong. 
But it does seem a bit ridiculous that David listened to Ziba. After all, Mephibosheth, has, he's, he ate at the king's table like a son of David. Oh, hang on a minute. Being likened to David's sons isn't actually a great thing at this point, is it? Perhaps, perhaps such a charge against Mephibosheth might seem plausible to a man in grief like David was at the moment. But it's not probable. Really, by no stretch of the imagination could Mephibosheth have thought that Absalom's rebellion might result in himself becoming king. Now, certainly at that time in history, a man with a significant disability could never have been a serious possibility for the throne. And the rebellion hadn't come from the tribe of Benjamin. It came from David's own ambitious son, who was hardly likely to put in such effort to just put a descendant of Saul back on the throne. And as far as we know, Mephibosheth had, had no, shown no signs at all that it was something he would have wanted. Sadly, David here demonstrates the capacity that most of us also have to believe the worst of others immediately. And so perhaps David can be excused for this hasty decision in the stress of the moment, but it reminds us that David's weaknesses had not all been left behind in Jerusalem in this crisis. He's still finding it difficult to resist pressure from those close by. And so David accepts the material aid and he makes this hasty legal decision. Now, the decision is one that's going to catch up with him later in chapter 19. When David returns back to Jerusalem, Mephibosheth comes out to meet him. And Mephibosheth seems to have been in mourning from the day David left. He's all unkempt and he reveals that Ziba was lying here, that Ziba had betrayed him and swindled him out of all of his possessions. Sadly, we have betrayal in the midst of betrayal. Ziba has taken this opportunity of David's son's betrayal of David, Absalom's betrayal of David, to betray his own master for his own gain. Ziba is a scoundrel in it for his own gain. Betrayal in the midst of betrayal. But Ziba and Mephibosheth, well, they brought to mind David's complex relationship with the house of Saul, King Saul and his relatives. And so the next character to cross David's path continues this thread of the narrative. We meet Shimei, who's a Benjamite of the clan of Saul. David and his entourage continue on and they meet Shimei in verse 5 to 8. So come with me to verse 5 to 8. As King David approached Baharim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shimei, son of Gera, and he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. As he cursed, Shimei said, Get out, get out, you murderer, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom, 
and you have come to ruin because you are a murderer. Well, I'm going to give you 30 seconds again. What do you think of Shimmy? Is he right? Is there any truth to what he's saying? What do you reckon? Have a chat with the person next to you. 30 seconds. All right, that's 30 seconds. What do you reckon? Is Shimmy right? Is he on to something? He's pretty bold, coming out, pelting rocks. David's got his guard on his right and his left, and Shimmy's there throwing rocks at him. Shimmy, uh, son of Gera, he's apparently a prominent man in the clan of the house of Saul. We see him turn up again in chapter 19 in a few chapters when David returns, and he's accompanied by a thousand Benjamites. So it seems like he's a dude. Anyway, when Shimei says to David in verse 8, all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, he's probably blaming David for the deaths of Abner, who was the commander of Saul's army in chapter 3, Ishbosheth who was the son of Saul in chapter 4. And possibly there's an event that happens in chapter 21, which is we haven't got to yet, but it's in the epilogue of the book, and so it's not necessarily in chronological order. So it may have already occurred, we're not really sure, but Saul's sons and grandsons are being put to death in that event. Or even Shimei could be blaming David for the death of Saul himself. But throughout Samuel, the books of Samuel, the writer is at pains to show that David is not guilty of any of these deaths. See, in chapter 3, David curses Joab and Abishai for the killing of Abner. David also executed Rechab and Bana for killing Ishbosheth. He executed them for that. And in chapter 21, the responsibility for the Gideonite vengeance on the sons and grandsons of Saul, well, it's laid squarely on Saul in that chapter for breaking an oath that the Israelites had made with the Gideonites. The blame is laid on Saul, not David. And throughout the books of Samuel, we've seen that David has had ample opportunity to kill Saul. He's now dead, but previously he had ample opportunity But every time David had refused to lay a hand on Saul, the Lord's anointed. He mourns Saul's death. Clearly, Shimei's claims are not accurate with regard to the household of Saul. But there are some truths in what he says which must have hit home for David. What does he say at the end of verse 8? You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. He's right, isn't he? David's hands are not innocent of blood. They're stained by the blood of Uriah. And his failure in his own sins, his failure to administer justice in his kingdom and even in his own family are hanging over this whole situation. 
And David's attitude then to Shimei's cursing, well, it's worth reflecting on. What does David do here? He's humbled. He patiently endures these cursings, reasoning that God may actually be speaking words he needs to hear, even through someone like Shimei. Now, Shimi's cursing uh, is interesting. In nations surrounding Israel, uh, life was dominated by a fear of curses. Curses were seen as a powerful means to manipulate circumstances or to cause people great harm. But for the Israelites, for believers in Yahweh, the God of Israel, their conviction about God's sovereignty was so great that someone's curses could simply be ignored. So, if Shimei had really grasped the truth, and this was God's judgment on David, well, then it's God himself and not Shimei who was to be feared. David hadn't been directly responsible for killing Saul or his family, but the truth of the occasion, that he was a man of blood and a scoundrel, would have hit home for him. But if this wasn't God's judgment... If Shimei was not in line with God's will, well, then his curse was irrelevant. In fact, David even suggests that the distress that is caused to him by someone like Shimei might eventually be replaced by God's blessing. And so David wasn't sure. He wasn't sure whether the current situation would end positively for him or not. But he was completely convinced that in either instance, God remained sovereign. And so we also need to have the conviction that it is God and God alone who is sovereign. It is God who is to be feared and trusted. Jesus said in Luke 12, 4-5, he says, it's not those who kill the body that are to be feared, men, but one who has authority to throw you into hell. God. Now, of course, people can do us great damage, but we need to be far more afraid of offending God's will than of any ill will or vendetta that someone might have against us. And it also allows us to hand over ultimate justice to God and not have to take vengeance on those who wish us harm. Which also leads us to the third person that David interacts with. Abishai, son of Zariah, brother of Joab, comes up to the king ready to defend him, ready to take vengeance. So have a look at verse 9. Abishai, son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. But the king said, What does this have to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he's cursing because the Lord said to him, curse David, who can ask, why do you do this? David then said to Abishai and all his officials, sorry, my son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore me to his covenant blessing instead of this curse today. 
<clears throat> so David and his men continued along the road while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. The king and all the people with him arrived at their destination exhausted, and there he refreshed himself. All right, last one. What do you think of Abishai? Is he right to offer to defend David like this? And what do you think of David's response to Shimei and Abishai? Have a 30-second chat, chat to the person next to you. All right, that's your 30 seconds. <clears throat> what did you think of Abishai? Is he right? Is he defending the Lord's anointed? Or is he just pretty crazy and out there? Now, verse 10 to 11, sorry, 10 to 12, uh, verse 10 to 12, they're similar um, actually to an earlier incident. David's reply to Abishai's similar proposal in 1 Samuel 26. Dunskis. All right. 1 Samuel 26. Back in that passage, in that incident, David and Abishai have gone into Saul's camp at night. They've snuck in and Saul is there lying asleep. David's rival. And Abishai offers to kill him for David. I'll do it. And Abishai said to David... Don't have that one? Don't have that? I thought I fixed up the PowerPoint from this morning. Oh, yeah, we got it. Oh, it is there. And Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? See, Abishai and his brother Joab, they're the sons of Zeruiah, that's David's sister. They're all too keen to shed blood. Joab's family has even previously been cursed and reprimanded by David for murdering Abner. You'll see on the slide again as well, 2 Samuel 3, 29, David says, may his blood, Abner's blood, fall on the head of Joab and his whole family. May Joab's family never be without someone who has a running sore or leprosy or who leans on a crutch or who falls by the sword or who lacks food. Joab and his brother Abishai murdered Abner because he had killed their brother Asahel in the battle at Gibeon. And we see again as well uh, in chapter 19 when Shimei reappears when David has come back to Jerusalem, Abishai is going to again request permission to kill him. He's a one-trick pony. He reminds me of the Queen of Hearts. Off with their heads. That's Abishai. That's Joab. That's the brothers, the sons of Zeruiah. And so what appears to be fierce loyalty from the nephew of David, Abishai, is probably just his own sadistic thirst for blood. 
Abishai, in typical fashion, he just wants to chop off someone's head. Any excuse will do. And so while Abishai and his brother Joab, well, they're positioned on David's side, it's probably managing these bloodthirsty men in itself is a challenging task for David. They're more impulsive children than men who David has to constantly manage and they're predictable, but they're dangerous. Now, yesterday, we, um, me and my wife, uh, Annie, and our son, Ezra, we went to a park near Concord, uh, near friend's house. And um, this park, I uh, looked it up on Google Maps, it had some pretty epic play equipment. But it also had quite a big part with sand and water. And uh, so we were a little bit reluctant because Ezra was in his nice clothes uh, to go out for lunch and dinner. And Ezra is pretty predictable in this way, at least. Uh, and so, of course, when we got there, we went to the, the nice equipment with the soft fall rubber. And what does Ezra do? And he goes straight for the sand and water. He can't help himself. No matter how good the other play equipment is, wet sand is what he wants. It's inevitably where he'll head straight towards. <sighs> it seems like the sons of Zeroyah have the maturity of a toddler, but they have the capabilities of a ruthless killer. And so David has to manage them like a child who runs straight for the wet sand and has to take, tell them off and drag them back. But in his own hands, in his own words, after they killed Abner, David says, though I am the anointed king, oh, no, sorry. No, I don't have that one. <laughs> uh, he says, though I am the anointed king, I am weak. And these sons of Zeruiah are too strong for me. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil deeds. They're like sharks drawn to the smell of the potential for blood. And so David, well, he strongly dissociates himself, not just from this particular action, but from the whole approach of the sons of Zeruiah. And we're perhaps being led to question whether, in one sense at least, Abishai and Joab are actually being presented almost as much as enemies of David as Shimei was. Their supposedly fierce loyalty to the Lord's anointed is actually just a cover. It's a ruse. It's an excuse for them to kill. And so in contrast to them, David, as he flees, well, he demonstrates trust in God. He cannot afford to fight because trust in God is the basis of his position. He entrusts himself instead to God's dealings with him. Oh, thank you. When Shimi hurls insults at him, David's reaction is to suggest that God sent Shimi with his insults and that it's God's business to recompense Shimi for his insults, not David. And his response to Abishai, David refers twice to Shimei acting on divine instruction, the first time as a possibility and the second as a certainty. His exchange with Abishai presents a David quite different from the one we've seen recently, much more like the David we first met before he became king, one who's willing to accept what comes from the hand of God even in view of his wrongdoing, one who does not grasp hold of his power, 
but is willing to endure curses and submit himself to God's hand. One much more like the Messiah of God. You see on the screen, there's a few passages from uh, regarding Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. You'll see that Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus did not grasp hold of his power on authority. You'll see that Christ was cursed for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree or a pole, the cross. And you'll see that Isaiah, writing many hundreds of years before Jesus, but about him, says he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Finally, finally, after some terrible chapters, we see hints of David in the likeness of our ultimate Messiah, our ultimate anointed King, Jesus. We see hints of one who was not trying to grasp hold of his authority. We see one who submitted to the will and purposes of God, one who endured cursing and who was oppressed and afflicted, but did not use his power to destroy his enemies, but reasoned that the Lord would look on his misery and restore him to his covenant blessing instead of this curse today. See, David failed in so many ways, and we've been hearing about that the last few weeks, haven't we? But he was still God's chosen king for Israel. And he still points us forward to the ultimate and perfect king, God's son, Jesus. Now, by the end of our passage, David has arrived at a safe enough distance from Jerusalem, just at the very time when Absalom and his followers reached the city. See, God has been at work throughout this passage, orchestrating David's escape, providing all that he needs, even though it's been provided through people who themselves have questionable motives. God has been at work maintaining his covenant with David as his anointed king. God is still for David, and so too should Israel be. And the accounts, as David's gone on this exit from Jerusalem, the accounts of people whose friendship and loyalty towards David are free from self-interest, Ittai, Zadok, and Hushai, well, they're followed by the mention of Ahithophel's disloyalty and Shimei's enmity to David. And then in the middle of that, we get Ziba's account, where his loyalty to David was a bit ambiguous, but his disloyalty to Mephibosheth is clear. Friends, we're being asked to reflect on the nature of loyalty and of friendship and of trust. And as well, we see the betrayal of David it's not just selfish and political. Well, it's also a spiritual exercise in betraying God. For all David's failings, he was still the king that God had chosen for Israel. 
He pointed to the need for a perfect King Jesus, but he also showed us glimpses of what our perfect King would look like. For all David's faults and the cluelessness that he seems to have about the way that he relates to God and the way that he lives his life, well, he's still resolute in his commitment to Yahweh, the God of Israel, to our God. And he points us forward to Christ's perfect loyalty to his Father, his suffering and endurance of curses in trusting himself to God, reasoning that God would keep his promises and covenant and restore him, that God would administer justice in the end. So we can learn something of what it looks like to entrust God with all that we have, even in the midst of suffering and betrayal by others. We see a picture of loyal devotion to God, even when the lot we're dealt with is not so good. We don't talk about loyalty much, do we? And we can see in David a picture of humility about our own sin and the way that God may sometimes be disciplining us for our own good that he might restore us. We can then strive, therefore, to be people of integrity in our relationships, not backhand dealing or manipulating or all-out oppositional like we see in the people that David interacted with today, but people who act with integrity and kindness and honesty, even if it's not being reciprocated in the people we meet. Because this is how God has dealt with us, isn't it? He's shown us kindness, even when we were his enemies. Though we abandoned him and we crucified God's anointed king, he has not forsaken us. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we see the people that David meets on his escape from Jerusalem, we're challenged. We're challenged to think about loyalty and friendship, about integrity about serving our own purposes and about submitting to your, your anointed one. Father, we do pray indeed that we would submit to Christ as our one true king, as the ultimate Messiah, as the one who has saved us and brought us to new life and as the one who now reigns in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.